there's something that we love about determination. Now, we admire people who are so committed to a cause, a good cause, they give their life over to the service of their cause, and, and they're willing to count the cost, whatever it takes to see that cause prevail. I'll give you a couple of examples for you tonight. Uh, anyone recognize this first person up on the screen? Can, any, anyone going to shout it out for us? Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, devoted his life to the advancement of the African-American civil rights movement. Uh, helping people to get the right to vote, get the right to be seen as functional members of society. I really enjoyed watching a couple of years ago, there was a movie that came out, Selma, a brilliant movie, worth watching in terms of building some empathy for what the situation was like. But you see here a man who counted the cost to himself, to his family, to pursue the good for others. Uh, Another one for you, fictional character this time. Anyone know who this one is? The Mocking Jay, yep, Daniel's all over it. He loves these movies. Uh, <laughs> Katniss Everdeen, as a teenager, devoting her life to see the capital overthrown, to see this form of government that was uh, oppressing the few in the outer regions so that a few in the centre could be wealthy. Um, she gave her life over to that cause. And there's something we love about that, something that draws us to these kinds of characters. There must have been times when Martin Luther King or Katniss just wanted to turn back, go to sleep, wake up and it all be over. Times when they started to wonder if the cost was too high. But they stayed committed to their goals, even when it hurt. Even when friends and family started to desert them. Even when friends and family started to get killed. They stayed committed, resolute, determined. Because they knew that whatever the cost to themselves... In the long run, what they were doing was important and it was going to be worth it for the benefit of many others. And so we admire people like that. We respect their commitment to the task. And tonight we're going to see in Luke's gospel that Jesus was that kind of person, committed, resolute, determined. And alongside that, he was also merciful. He didn't trample on those who got in the way of his goals. And the question for us today as we meet this Jesus is will you follow him? He's going to call you tonight to love him more and prioritize him more than your comfort, to love him and prioritize him more than your family, to love him and prioritize him more than your past. But he is the king of the world. Will you follow him? Let me pray as we turn to feel the burden of God's word to us tonight. Now, Father in heaven, may you be honoured this evening in my words and in our thoughts. Please, if there's anything that I say that is not in line with your word, that is not true, would you wipe that from our minds straight away? We get enough lies throughout the week. We want truth from you tonight, Father. So please, anything that I do say that is in line with your word, anything that is true, cause that to sink deep into our hearts and to take root and to bear fruit. May we be transformed tonight by your spirit coming away with a renewed vision of Jesus, seeing him clearly, and a renewed commitment to follow him, forsaking all else. Help us tonight to see that glory comes only through suffering and death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as Ming mentioned tonight, we jump into the book of Luke. We're starting in chapter 9. We 
We covered over the last couple of years two other sections of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke is one of four books within the Bible that give their focus primarily to recording the historical life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So the other three alongside that are Matthew, Mark and John. And in these four books, we've kind of got a different angle, a different aspect looking at who Jesus was, uh, looking at the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if you haven't been with us the last couple of years, you probably need a bit of a a run-through of what's been happening in Luke. Even if you were with us, it's been a couple of years. You might have forgotten. So let's do a bit of a previously in the Gospel of Luke for a few minutes. Uh, Luke has started his book with a brilliant first sentence. Uh, It's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the Greek text that we have. He sets himself up in this first sentence alongside the best historians of his day. Uh, Have a look at his introductory sentence. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Yes, that is one sentence. It's a lovely long sentence. We don't like long sentences too much in modern day English, uh, but they're not too hard if we take it bit by bit. Essentially, what Luke is saying in his elevated style here is some big stuff's been happening recently and lots of people in town have been talking about it. There's stories circulating. Uh, Some of the people talking about it are eyewitnesses. They saw what went down. So I, I thought I'd try to put it all in order to help you be certain about what really happened. That's what Luke's saying. He's got a friend, Theophilus, who probably paid for him to write this book. And so he's saying, I'm going to write history. I've done all the research, and I'm going to write history in an orderly way so that you can have certainty about this man, Jesus, who was born in Nazareth during the time of King Herod and who was crucified, executed under Pontius Pilate. So as Luke sets out on this work of history, he shows us that Jesus is the anticipated king of the world. Have a listen to how the angel Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus to his mother, even before he was born. The angel said, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So here, right at the start of Luke, we're getting a picture of what Jesus will be. And you notice all the kingly language in there. We've got the throne of David reigning over the house of Jacob, a kingdom that will have no end. Jesus is coming to be a king. If you're unfamiliar with Israel's history, David was their first great king. David was the one that conquered Jerusalem, taking it off the Jebusites, and he set up Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. Under David's rule, Israel had peace on every side. David was this mighty warrior. He led the armies, and they defeated every enemy around Israel. So that by the time David died and handed the kingdom on to his son Solomon, they were in a good spot. They were prosperous. They had lots of income coming in. And that gave Solomon the freedom to build a great big temple for God in Jerusalem. Now, God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on that throne in Jerusalem forever. That's the promise that's picked up in Luke. 
that Jesus would ascend the throne of his father, David. But a lot's happened between David and Jesus. There should be a timeline up on the screen for you to see. So you can see David up towards the top in that yellow bit, 1000 BC. Uh, Between David and Jesus, Israel's kings went bad. Israel's kings stopped worshipping Yahweh as God. They started worshipping the gods of the nations around them, falling into idolatry of all kinds. Uh, Alongside that, they started oppressing the people of Israel. Uh, The kings got wealthy off the land and extorted great taxes from the people and, and even killed some of the people of Israel. These kings were bad and because of that, God's judgment was coming on Israel. The whole northern part, you can see up there in 922, they had a split. The kingdom split into two, a north and a south. Uh, The north only lasted 200 years. 722 BC, Assyria, big superpower of the day, swept down and just took them out. Completely destroyed the northern part of Israel. The southern part lasted a little bit longer, but as you come further down, 586 BC, Babylon comes along, a new superpower, and they come in and just destroy the temple in Jerusalem. The whole thing gets knocked down and all the people of Israel get carried off into this foreign land of Babylon. And we talk about that as the exile. And so essentially we wind up in that time of the exile with Israel having no king. They're not in their land anymore. They've got no temple, so they can't live out God's law of all the sacrifices. Uh, Essentially everything's fallen apart. But they still have these promises from God. God's promises to Abraham that his rescue plans for the whole world would feature Israel, that that saving the whole world, blessing the whole world would feature Israel. And they have that promise of God to David, that one of his descendants would be king in a kingdom that would last forever. So that's the situation as we come towards Jesus' say. Now, if you're looking at that timeline going, that'd be great to know and have in my mind, come along to a conference called Equip in January. If you do Strand 2 at Equip, then you get run through this whole timetable and you get to think through how do we read the Old Testament? How do we understand the Old Testament? Uh, If you haven't been to Equip before, you'll have to come to Strand 1, but it's great as well. Um, Come and do whichever one. Equip will be fantastic. But if we come down to Jesus' day, 400 or so years later, uh, that turning point between BC and AD, uh, Israel is still essentially in exile. They're living back in the land. That happened about 400 and... 480 they came back to the land Uh, and they've got a temple but it's not like the temple used to be by jesus time the temple has been mostly built by the romans not built by themselves the romans made it flash there they've got no king they're being ruled over by these roman oppressors so israel's still in this state of exile and we meet people in luke's gospel because of that people like simeon in Luke 2, who is looking forward to Israel's consolation. Or a character called Anna, who's in the temple uh, looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The nation of Israel is waiting for this king to come, who would bring them back from exile, who would restore their fortunes as a nation, which would mean that God could uh, extend his blessing, his salvation again to the whole world. That's what Israel was looking forward to. And what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus is precisely that king. As we work through the series of Luke, we'll come up with this phrase again and again, the kingdom of God. Write it down in your outline, underline it. It's a phrase that will be key for us to understand. The kingdom of God conveys this hope for a king who would come and exercise God's rule throughout the whole earth. It's the hope that Israel's God, Yahweh, 
is going to rule the whole world and any other king like Caesar or Donald Trump or the Queen, they're not going to rule it. That's the hope of the kingdom of God. And so we find Jesus, as he gets towards at the end of Luke chapter 4, speaking of his task in these terms. He says, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' task is a proclamation of the kingdom, an announcement that the kingdom has come, because he as the king has come. And so Jesus' task is to go around to all of Israel and say, I'm here. The king is here. And it's good news because as king, Jesus will restore order to the broken world. He'll heal sicknesses. He'll cast out demons. He'll liberate the oppressed. He'll bring justice on the oppressors. But we'll see more of that in the coming weeks of Luke. The big question that stands before us as we read Luke's gospel and meet Jesus as king is this. Will you kneel before him as your king? Will you accept that he has the right to rule over you? Will you follow him? Now, as we turn to our passage in Luke 9 that Austin read for us earlier, I want to draw your attention to two characteristics of Jesus that I think make him a very attractive king, a very attractive leader. The first is that characteristic that I opened with. Jesus, we see here, is a determined person. Read with me from Luke 9, verse 51. When the days were coming to a close for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him, because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. See, up to this point, Jesus has been hanging out up around Galilee. There should be a map up on the screen for us to see this. Galilee up the top, you can see that little sea there. That's where Jesus hung out. He was born around uh, Bethlehem and then grew up in Nazareth. That's where he was from. So most of his early life, the early parts of Luke, he's been right up the top there. Uh, But at this point in the story, Luke 9 verse 51, he sets out to Jerusalem, down the bottom just above the big Judea there. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem and he won't get there till chapter 19. So Luke gives us these 10 chapters of of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. Twice in Luke 9, as we read this introduction, this turning point, we get the description that Jesus determined to journey to Jerusalem. That's translating an idiom, a phrase that literally says, he strengthened his face to journey to Jerusalem. You get the image of Jesus uh, focusing his eyes directly ahead. He doesn't want to look left or right. He knows where he's going and he's focusing completely on that goal. And we start to understand that image once we realize what is waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem. See, on the surface level, Jesus needs to get to Jerusalem because that's the capital city. And if he's a king, then that's where kings rule. That was where David ruled. But we already know by this point in Luke that although Jesus' kingship will be welcomed by some people, it will be rejected by the key power players in Israel. What awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is suffering and death. So have a listen to what Jesus said earlier on in chapter 9, verse 22, just after his disciples recognized that he was the promised king. In Luke 9, verse 22, Jesus says, "'The Son of Man must suffer many things.'" 
and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. This is where Jesus is heading. Towards a glorious resurrection, yes, but through the pain of suffering and rejection and death. So what would you have done if this was you? Suppose you know that there are people who want to kill you and you know exactly who they are and you know where they're hanging out and you know they want you dead. What would you do? I'd be feeling a pretty strong urge to stay away, to, to run the opposite direction and make sure they don't find out where I am. Thankfully, I've never been in that position of people wanting to kill me, as far as I know. If you're here tonight and you want to kill me, I'm sorry for whatever I've done. Let's patch that up before you go home tonight. Uh, I don't want to be killed. I'm staying away from that place. But Jesus, he strengthens his face. He commits, he resolves, he determines. He knows exactly what's coming in Jerusalem. And he heads willingly towards his death because he knows that his death is the means to a far greater glory, not just for himself, but for others as well. We get a hint of this even in the way that Luke sets the time for us in verse 51. Right at the start of verse 51, the days are coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up. Now, the language of being taken up It's the word that's used later on when Jesus ascends into heaven. So Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. Uh, But even after being risen to new life in the resurrection, uh, he ascended up into heaven to sit on God's throne, extending his rule throughout the world person by person. As every person bows their knee before Jesus, his kingdom grows. So that's where Jesus is even today, sitting on that throne. Uh, Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we are now able to be forgiven for our rebellion against God's rule. So we've all at some stage in life, perhaps even now for you, have declared self-rule against God. We've said to God, I don't want you ruling my life. I think I can do a pretty good job of ruling my own life. I want to be king. Let me make up for myself what is right and wrong. Jesus' ascension to the throne of God now gives us confidence that we can be forgiven for that rebellion. Gives us confidence that there's life beyond death with Jesus. Jesus knew that his life was bound up with this purpose for broader humanity. And this makes him an attractive leader, I think, doesn't it? Though it was painful, though it will cost him, he determines to go to Jerusalem. I think this is a king that we can have confidence in. The second admirable characteristic of Jesus is his mercy. Jesus is a merciful king. So in verse 52 to 53 of chapter 9, we see this Samaritan village does something pretty disrespectful. Uh, Try to picture the scene. Jesus has been gathering his crowd of followers. He's been walking through these towns of Galilee and, and students, disciples, have been gathering to him. So they're traveling in this kind of posse, this entourage, moving around Galilee. Uh, And because of that, uh, they need places to stay. Hotels weren't a big thing in this culture. There were a few inns around. But the common cultural custom is that when you were traveling, when you were passing through a town, someone would open up their house for you. Someone would invite you to stay the night, give you food, and then send you on your way the next morning. But because Jesus is traveling with this crowd, he sends messages ahead of him. to to let the towns know in advance, we've got this many people coming. Can you make space for us? But the Samaritan village, 
They won't have a bar of this. They will not welcome Jesus. They cut against the cultural custom of the time. They, they don't show hospitality. They're inhospitable. And when we find out why, Luke tells us, it's because Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't get on too well. If you think about uh, the Gaza Strip and the Israel-Palestine conflict today, maybe tone that down by about 50%, and that's where the Samaritans and the Jews are at. They really didn't like each other much. And so they're disrespectful to Jesus. And James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they, they recognize this disrespectfulness, and they have a great idea. Like, all right, Jesus, let's get the fire. Let's just burn them all up. Um, I, James and John would have been fun to hang out with. Uh, but they're not pulling this idea from nowhere. You know, there, there is precedent for what they're calling for here. There's precedent for inhospitality being judged by fire. Uh, think of Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis 17-ish, somewhere around there, 19 maybe. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah wouldn't welcome God's messengers. Uh, instead of welcoming them into their homes, they wanted to rape them. It's a tragic story, terrible story. And because of their inhospitality, God sent judgment on that town. And Sodom and Gomorrah don't exist anymore. They got wiped out with sulfur and fire. Uh, there's another story as well in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 1, when Elijah, a prophet of God, is chilling out on a hill, just enjoying his time, and the king wants a chat, sends some soldiers along. The soldiers think they can command Elijah and say, you've got to come with us. We've got to go see the king. And Elijah's like, if I'm a man of God, may fire come from heaven and burn you all. And it does. And he does that twice until the third group of soldiers go, okay, this is someone who represents God. We better show some respect like we would show to God. So we've got this precedent that inhospitality, disrespect, can be judged with fire. And Jesus would be well within his rights to say to James and John, hey guys, that's a great idea. Let's do it. They could have done that. And that would be just. That would be what this town of Samaritans deserves. But, verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Said so briefly and simply. Jesus had mercy. He didn't give this Samaritan village what they deserved. He was on his way to Jerusalem to die precisely for people like these Samaritans. For people like you and me, who have rebelled against God, who have disrespected God. And later on, as we move into Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, we find the Samaritans hearing the gospel, hearing that Jesus is king. And at that time, they are ready and willing to bow their knee before him and say, yes, Jesus, be our king. So they too would end up getting the forgiveness that Jesus was achieving by his death. Now, friends, if you're here tonight and you're still in that place of trying to be your own king, hear tonight the mercy of the Lord. You, you can not be punished for what you have done. Jesus has taken that punishment for you. Bow the knee to Jesus. Let him be king of your life. And for those of us who are Christian, I want us to see just in this short little snippet here that there is no place for us to be vengeful when we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. There will come a time eventually, and we'll see this later on in Luke, when Jesus will call for all those who don't want him to be king, those who have rejected his kingship, and he will have them destroyed in front of him. That judgment will come. One day everyone will meet Jesus. And either they will bow the knee willingly before him, or they will be destroyed for refusing to honour him as king. 
But that time's not yet. That's in the future. And for us now in the present, vengeance is never ours to take. It's never our place to destroy or kill those who oppose Jesus. So we've seen so far, Jesus is a determined king. Jesus is a merciful king. The question is, will you follow him? Throughout Galilee, Jesus has been calling people to become his disciples, to leave everything that they were doing and join themselves to him as his students, to learn from his teaching, join in this task of proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's been clear that to do so would mean following him on his path through suffering and death, this journey that he's going on to Jerusalem, through suffering and death into glory. So hear the way that he put it earlier on in this chapter. Chapter 9, verse, I think about 23 or so. He says to them all, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So following Jesus means following the path that he walked. For these first disciples, he was calling them very physically to walk with him towards Jerusalem. Uh, but already the call extended beyond that. See, following Jesus meant denying yourself, taking up your cross daily. If sin is this declaration of autonomy, that we want to be our own king, that we want to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, then to follow Jesus is to turn away from that, to deny yourself, to let Jesus be your king, to let go of your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, to make sacrifices for the goal, to count the cost. If we picture life like driving a car, who has their license already amongst us here? Hey, that's a fair few of you. Good. good. I'm glad. Um, driving cars is good. It's fun. Uh, imagine that life's like driving a car. You don't like the backseat driver, do you? You don't like someone in the back telling you where to go. You're the driver. You decide where you're going. You know the destination, you know where you want to turn, you know how fast and slow to go. Yes, you do see that pedestrian on the side of the road. You don't need the passenger telling you that they're there. You're the driver. You've got this right. To turn to Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to step out from that driver's seat and to say to Jesus, look, you take the wheel. I'm going to sit in the back. You have my life now. You tell me where we're going. You tell me how fast we're going, how slow we're going. Yep, if you want the air conditioning on, you put it on, Jesus. It's all yours. Jesus gets the car. Jesus gets your life. He gets to decide where you're going, what you're doing. That's what it means to deny yourself and follow Jesus. Now, because of who Jesus is, because of what he claims to be, following him contains within it a willingness to be rejected by the world, to be hated to the point of death, even by friends and family. It might mean being killed as an outcast, even as Jesus was. That's what he calls his followers to. As we come back to the passage that we had read for us, Luke 9, Jesus and his crowd of students, they're on this road to Jerusalem. And someone declares, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And given what we've just seen, that's an easier thing to say than to do. And so Jesus responds to this youthful arrogance. He makes clear that following him means loving him more than comfort. Following Jesus means loving him more than comfort. So Jesus' response, foxes have dens, 
birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man, it's one of Jesus' terms for himself, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus' point's pretty clear, isn't it? Animals have homes, but I don't. Jesus has left the comfort and security of a regular resting place. Now, does this mean that all Christians need to sell up their houses? Maybe not many of us own houses here tonight. Should we not look to go into the property market? Just be wandering nomads, able to go wherever we can? Well, not necessarily. Levi, back in chapter 5, one of the disciples that Jesus did call to follow him, straight after that call, he throws a big party for Jesus at his house. Doesn't seem like Levi sold up his house. Zacchaeus, in chapter 19 of Luke, he does the same thing. Big party for Jesus at his house. So it doesn't look like we necessarily have to not go into the property market at all. But I think what it does mean is that while Christians may have houses, we ought never have a home in this earth. Now, as I distinguish those words of house and home, picking up on something that I think is a fairly common uh, distinction between those terms. You talk about a house as the actual physical thing, but a home is somewhere where there are memories attached, where there's a sense of security, a sense of peace, a sense of home. As a classic movie says, a man's home is his castle. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, pick up on. And, and Jesus is saying, Christians, you should never have a home like that in this world. Following me, I don't have a home in this world. We're, we're to have a detachment to this world that says, my only home is in heaven with Jesus. And until I get there, I'm just passing through. As James would put it, just, not James, I think it's Peter. We're just a vapor, a mist that's here for a little while and then gone. We're passing through. Now that might mean that at some point you do decide to sell your house. Or it might mean that you decide never to buy a house. So that you do have that flexibility to just pass through this world. To be able to move wherever Jesus calls you to go. The question is, will you love Jesus more than you love your comfort? Will you follow him to places that are uncomfortable? In verse 59, Jesus picks out a second person. And this time he teaches that following him means loving him more than family. Following Jesus means loving him more than family. Jesus says to this second person, follow me but he wants to go back and bury his father first. Seems a reasonable request. But Jesus' reply is very abrupt. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And how do you feel as you hear that? That's confronting. It's not Jesus being nice and polite and saying, oh, if that works for you, yeah, okay, whatever, we're chill, just fine. No, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. For the Jews, burial was part of God's law. It was a paramount example, a work of love. It was a moral imperative. To leave a body unburied, that was shameful. That was worthy of punishment even within the Jewish law. So this man's request to bury his father seems reasonable and even commendable. But Jesus is clear. There are others who are spiritually dead. They haven't come to recognize that Jesus is king, so they don't actually have life, and they can get on with this work of burying the dead. Following Jesus is more important. 
Because only then, only through this message that Jesus is king, can those who are spiritually dead become alive and have a life that lasts beyond physical death. Now, some of you are struggling with this call from Jesus. You love your family. You've been raised to honour your family highly, to see the biological family as the key unit of your allegiance. But Jesus is clear. He redefines family. Your family is now those who hear God's word and put it into practice. There's been a a story a bit earlier on in Luke where Jesus' mother and brothers come to find him. He's teaching somewhere. And the crowd tells him, Jesus, your mother and brother are outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? It's you who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus redefines family around himself. Does this mean that you now go out of your way to disrespect your family? No. But you recognize that your allegiance to Jesus as king may well bring division between you and your family. A couple of examples of this. Uh, To become a Christian as a young girl in Malaysia from a Muslim family. Just imagine that scenario. What would happen? At best send you off to another part of the country under a different name. At worst, they'll physically harm you, even kill you. To become a Christian puts you at odds with your family. A friend of mine back in Australia, who's part of my connect group back there, his brother has not spoken to him for about a decade since he became a Christian. His brother didn't come to his wedding because he was marrying a Christian woman and it was going to be a Christian wedding. Parents may disown you if you choose to follow Jesus. And Jesus isn't surprised by this. He prepares us for this. He says this will happen. And he says, yes, follow me, whatever the cost. Do you love Jesus more than your family? Will you follow him even if it means your family hate you? There's a third person along this road to Jerusalem. They too want to follow Jesus. Verse 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. Now, again, this seems reasonable, but Jesus' response, clear and abrupt. Jesus says, following me means loving me more than your past. To follow Jesus means loving him more than your past. Verse 62, Jesus says to him, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus picks up on this farming metaphor that it's like putting your hand to the plough. I don't know when was the last time you ploughed a field. I haven't ploughed one in my lifetime. Not many of you probably have either. Uh, The idea with ploughing is that you're you're putting straight lines in your rectangular field uh, for the crops to go in. Uh, So you're ploughing the field and you need the lines to be straight to maximise the space. Um, Nowadays, we use tractors to help us with this, but back in Jesus' time, you know, they just had this heavy plowing instrument. Uh, If you started to do that work and you looked behind you, it's going to shift. You're going to go crooked. You've lost your focus. And Jesus is saying to follow him takes a single-minded focus, not looking back to the past, not looking back to what might have been, not considering what your potential could have been had you not become a Christian. I think where we particularly struggle with this today might be in the realm of careers. A friend recently reminded me 
that Christians don't have careers. Christians have jobs. See, careerism is about your identity and finding your identity in your work so that you seek to further your career, to to climb up and up that ladder of progression, that ladder of promotion, and you let your career define where you'll live and how much time you'll give to other things outside of it. Careerism like that is a sin. Christians don't have careers. Christians have jobs. We don't live to work. We work to live. We we work enough hours to bring in enough income so that we can put food on the table and have some money to give away to those who are unable to work and provide for themselves. That's the Christian approach to work. And so for many of you, as you're coming up to uni exams and feeling the stress of it, let that somewhat mitigate your stress. Uh, Our world tells us that career is everything, that job satisfaction is everything. It's not. Jesus calls us to follow him, And that's what's primary. And that will mean loving him more than your comfort, loving him more than your family, loving him more than your past. In the end, as we follow Luke's story through, Jesus ends up in Jerusalem, in prison and crucified, and none of his apostles are with him. They've all fallen off the track along the way. And that's instructive for us in understanding this passage tonight. See, we will not follow Jesus perfectly. But that doesn't excuse us from aiming at the kind of determination that Jesus calls us to. Yes, the disciples fell off as Jesus went to Jerusalem. But once he was raised again, they committed their life to this task and they did end up getting killed for it. We are called to strive for this kind of commitment and ask for forgiveness when we stumble. Discipleship, being a Christian, it's not merely one more commitment that we add to our long list of other commitments. Discipleship is the commitment and it demands a reordering of our lives from the bottom up. Follow Jesus at high cost or do not follow him at all. Friends, Jesus isn't calling us to anything other than what he went through himself. Jesus gave up the comfort of Nazareth to wander from village to village without a home. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They tried to stop him from what he was doing. I mean, he was claiming to be God and they'd grown up with him. They thought he was a nutcase. And Jesus didn't dwell on his past as a carpenter. He wasn't thinking, oh, I could have been the great carpenter. I could have been the best in Nazareth. He gave up that because he had something better to pursue. Jesus is the king. He was determined. He was merciful. He's the king of the world. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for your determination. Thank you for suffering the rejection and pain of the cross for us, that we might be forgiven for our rebellion. We praise you for your mercy. Thank you that you do not treat us as we deserve for rejecting you, but offer us a second chance to be citizens once more of your kingdom. Please do lead us. As we commit ourselves to your kingdom tonight, lead us, whatever the cost to our comfort, to our family, and whatever we have to leave behind in the past, help us to follow you through suffering and death into glory, because you are worth it. Amen.